0: Welcome to the Digital Euro Podcast by the Digital Euro Association. In this podcast, you will learn about the disruption of technology in the monetary and financial system. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the episode.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Digital Euro Podcast, the Digital Euro Association's podcast. We are a European think tank focusing on digital money and specifically the different forms of the Digital Euro. I'm Sarah Palerovic, and I'm one of the executive directors of the Digital Euro Association. And today I am joined by my colleague Tamara Schmidt and the founder of the CBDC think tank, Jamil Shaikh. Today's episode is going to touch on the CBDC manifesto, its roadmap from the idea to its publication, its target groups and supporters, and of course, what it recommends. Great to have you both with us today. Great to be here, Sarah.
2: Very excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
1: I think this will add a great overview for anyone that has read and has not yet read the CBDC Manifesto that got released yesterday when you're listening to this podcast. But before we get started with the CBDC Manifesto itself, we, of course, also want to shed a bit of light on, on you, Jamil, on your background and on the CBDC Think Tank. So if you could give us an intro to obviously your work, how you kind of came to be in the CBDC space and then how the CBDC think tank came into existence too.
2: Sure. Um, the CBDC think tank started about two years ago. Um, we actually announced a CBDC conference in January uh, 2020, a very fateful year. Um, that conference didn't materialize, but we were the, one of the first uh, people to do that. Um, and because it didn't materialize, we thought of, hey, we, we probably need another way to really Uh, do some outreach around CBDCs. We saw a lot of misinformation floating around. Um, And so kind of put together uh, the think tank um, as a means to, one, uh, facilitate conversation between central banks and the public, for the public to learn more from central banks directly around what they're doing. And this is at a time where a lot of what many of the central banks were doing were kind of, um, uh, veiled or, or opaque. Uh, and so we launched a, s- a series of talks, bringing central banks, um, to, um, to Zoom basically and saying, Hey, tell us what you're doing, what you think. Um, and that went really, really well. Um, and then, uh, we uh, post COVID, we've come back to doing conferences, um, and doing education. So we're pretty much focused on education. Uh, and, um, as of today, uh, we've announced advisory work. Although we are doing some advisory work with different central banks and other organizations, uh, we're starting to formalize our advisory services um, as of today.
1: I think at the very core, I hope this is what our listeners can gather too, um, the CBDC think tank and the DIA um, at the heart have education. I think the setup after that is a bit different, but this is exactly uh, our touch point. I think in exactly how the CBDC manifesto as an idea um, also came into um, existence. But um, very interesting to hear about that journey, certainly. And um, to touch on that, the um, collaboration between the CBDC think tank um, and the DIA, how would you um, characterize that so far?
2: Um, so, like, DIA for us is, is one of our, our best partners. Um, there's an enormous amount of collaboration. And when we started off a couple of years ago as very simple hey, let's just Uh, Cross market, Uh, but I think that relationship has grown over over the past uh, two years, and we've started to discuss um, a bunch of different initiatives. And then one of that was the manifesto, and it wasn't something that emerged overnight. It was you know really discussions with different people at the, uh, um, especially Dr. Jonas Gross, uh, around the misinformation in the space. You have Bitcoin maximalists projecting. All kinds of ideas about CBDCs uh, and there's a general mistrust around a CBDC design that actually never really existed right so uh, CBDCs will do this and CBDCs will do that so I think um, we kind of face the same things even though I do have a background in the blockchain and the crypto and the DeFi world Uh, we saw like both worlds were not really talking to each other Uh, and the leadership at Dia also saw that And that kind of created an opportunity for us to kind of bond um, and share more information and work on more opportunities together. So I would say it's probably a very deep uh, partnership um, that I think is going to continue to grow over over the coming years.
1: And really, we can just agree here um, from the DS side. The CBDC think tank has also been um, super valuable for us, um, you know, because in terms of um, the kind of education that you're putting out there, the type of focus that you're not just focusing on U.S. only, but are actually going across border and are specifically saying we want to reach out to international organizations, to international central banks, um, to international members um, and people working in industry. This is also, I think, something um, that binds us. Um, and the general idea, I think, is to build this CBDC alliance worldwide that doesn't just stay in its own silo, if we want to call it that too.
2: Right. And I think we're in a critical um, stage of human civilization when it comes to money. And we're in this situation where we're potentially redefining what money is. Um, And I think it's really important to to collaborate with the right organizations that are both open-minded and also looking to collaborate and not necessarily sell a product. And I think the Dia has been that type of organization that we we were very, very super happy to be partners with.
1: Certainly. And one last point that you also touched on just earlier that I want to get back to is the CBDC versus the crypto space in in those terms. It's really more what we see right now, um, the one talking about the other. So um, people that are super into the DeFi space talking about CBDC proponents um, and the other way around, to be fair, Um, as well, because they do have clashing ideologies um, to a certain extent, um, even though they also have common touch points, um, such as the need for um, digitized money, for example. And I think something that's also fair to say is that both of our organizations are trying to focus on making these two understand the other side better, of course, from the side of um, the CBDC proponents in that case, by kind of taking away, away the fear of all the negative aspects that CBDC could possibly bring, which I think is a great segue actually to get into the CBDC manifesto. Um, this is without getting ahead of myself, but I guess one of the key, um, the key objectives of the CBDC manifesto is to make sure, yes, we want a CBDC, but it has to fulfill the requirements or the design recommendations that are listed here. So to get started here, um, Tamara and Jamil, would you give us an introduction to what the CBDC manifesto is and how the idea came to be?
2: Right. So the manifesto is really a declaration, really, of saying, hey, these are the things that, uh, without really any doubt, uh, are not really compromisable, right? These are these are the five things that we believe and all the signatories believe are not um concepts that could be compromised, right? Like things around privacy um, and value proposition, um, which, which you know, addresses the core question, why do I need a CBDC, right? And so uh, our view is like, this must be stated, even though some of it may be obvious to a lot of people, but to a whole lot more people, it's not really obvious. And in fact, to a lot of people, the contrary seems obvious to them, right? And so by saying, hey, this is what uh, needs to be the case, uh, in our belief. That's our belief that this needs to be the case. Wherever a CBDC is implemented, um, these are the tenants that we believe that must be adhered to. Um, we're in some ways doing a public service. Like we were on the side of the people, uh, and not on the side of the sides of the banks necessarily. Uh, although the banks are are we believe are not going to be opposed to what we're saying, and we we'll see we see that. In the emerging literature in the past few months, um, that there there is clear uh, 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 agreement around some of the things that we're we're saying. So, but uh, but by, by, by publicly stating it and codifying it uh, and making it canonical, uh, then it's really saying, hey, this is a a anchor point where people can kind of gel around and say, hey, these are the things that we do agree. We do agree with the CBC manifesto. Um, and obviously, the implementation of, may require more nuances, uh, but at least we can agree on high level principles.
1: Anything to add from your side, Tamara? No, I think that Jamil
0: explained it uh, quite well.
1: So, just to reiterate, the CBDC manifesto is basically uh, on a spectrum between, well, the 10 commandments or the five commandments of a CBDC um, that are to be understood as. Well, the non-negotiables, if you want to look at it uh, that way, and then the way you interpret them, Jamil, it kind of depends on the circumstances of the country, of what's feasible, um, what technology will allow you to, um, to do with them.
2: Right. I'm. I'm. I'm gonna guess the Chinese, uh, 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 People's Bank of China might not agree with all of the tenants <laughs> we've got here. So. I'll um, take. <laughs> it's a hot take, yeah, it, but it is what it is, right? We still do need to say what we need to say uh, on our side uh, and say, "Hey, this is what we believe, how it should be." Um, but you know, like, and how did it, like, the manifesto, like, there was no one moment in time that it materialized. I think it was a com- multiple conversations with multiple people, uh, especially with Don- Dr. Jonas Gross um, and a few other people, and it kind of like slowly materialized, and I think it was. I think it was Jonas that first said, hey, we should have a manifesto. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, And we would put our support behind it. Um, And it kind of grew. And it was very organic. Um, And the initial draft of the manifesto and the current manifesto are very different. Uh, I think the initial manifesto was kind of a kitchen sink of all kinds of stuff. And we had lots of people commenting it. I think we had 20, 30 people all kinds of organizations looking at it and commenting and debating and disagreeing or dissenting opinions. Um, Some people said, I don't support this at all. Some people were like, you know, this really makes sense. So it kind of went through its paces. Uh, It went through, you know, um, some volatility. Uh, But I think it's kind of this uh, thing that came out of fire, right? So this is this fire of debate and discussion and sharing ideas and this kind of emerged. And it's really, we've got a lot of support for it. Lots of organizations are supporting it. And we'll see like over the coming weeks, uh, more and more signatories are gonna be joining it.
1: All right, if there isn't anything more, you were already talking about the people that were working on it. So the people that gave their feedback and contributed to the manifesto itself, who exactly, Um, was asked for feedback on this and then who was asked to whether or not they would um, support it. So if you want to call it that, who would put their name um, under it? Like what type of group segmentation do we see in both of those?
2: Yeah, I won't mention specific names um, until they're willing to like um, disclose it themselves. But like in terms of segments, it's across the board, Um, central banks, academia, uh, private institutions, vendors, um, Clearly lots of, lots of private individuals uh, are willing to sign on to this. Um, so I think it's, we've got like the full gamut of uh, people that are um, agreeing to it. Uh, and then we do have a full gamut of people that have looked into it and contributed and kind of gnashed their teeth, you know, kind of like got into it, rolled up their sleeves, and kind of like worked with us. Um, on it. So, and then uh, DIA played a major role um, in designing and um, putting this together. Uh, So much credit to DIA for putting a lot of this together and organizing, um, uh, uh, you know, big chunks of this, Um, and then bringing uh, lots of different organizations and groups of people together, right? It was a lot of work. And initially there was skepticism um, because, you know, nobody's getting paid to do this. Um, nobody's really getting compensated and this is really a love of labor uh, sorry a labor of love uh, it's more of hey this is something that needs to get done Uh, and so I was very happy to see kind of a diverse set of uh, uh, organizations and people involved diverse both from uh, you know their backgrounds gender uh, etc everything was really working and so I I see that that level of contribution was really special um, also, we didn't get bogged down into this bureaucratic process. The process moved pretty quickly, um, so people kind of congealed around the f- five, six points that we kind of uh, end up with. The five points that we end up with um, pretty quickly. There was really rapid consensus uh, around the five points, um, and so it didn't drag on for months and months and months. and happened kind of and came together pretty pretty quickly. So I think we'll see the signatories. Um, we have a website, cbdcmanifesto.com. The c- signatories uh, that are willing to make uh, their support public will be listed there um, you know, in the coming weeks.
0: I, I think it's important to mention that we start the interactions and the first consultation in April this year. And when we talked uh, with other think tanks, like the Digital Pound Foundation, for example, and academics as well, and in June, we started writing uh, the supporting documentation with our associate team and received feedback from CBDC experts. And after that, we invited uh, the DIA members, not only the institutions, but also the individuals. So fellows, experts, associates, to give us their suggestions and have the opportunity to co-create uh, the CB manifesto with us.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you both mentioned that this went through a couple of iterations of people looking at it, commenting, and what stands out to me now when reading it is that it's written in quite plain language, because academics can tend to have those run-on sentences, use a lot of technical language, but as you say, the audience is really anyone from politicians to central bankers to... um our grandparents, so to speak, really everyone. And, um, I think that this is certainly reached here, um, and the CBDC manifesto. And one last point on the timeline, um, that Tamara mentioned too, would be of course the release, which is going to take place at the CBD summit in DC. When you're listening to this podcast right here, um, that's ongoing. Jamil, do you want to just tell us in a couple of sentences what that's all about and how the release um, is planned.
2: Yes, yeah, so um, we'll be announcing this uh, October 12th um, during the CVC masterclass, uh, which we're holding in partnership with the IMF. Um, we'll be announcing in the morning. Um, and uh, that will we'll be with Dr. Jonas Gross, who will be present, um, representing Dia and myself. Uh, so we're very excited about that. Our website will go live at that point, uh, and then we'll have you know kind of the social media campaign and um, uh, press releases around it. Um, I think so. That's the, that's the plan. And then the CBD summit um, is a two-day thing. It's b- being done during the week of the IMF annual meetings, um, and uh, th- that event is um, uh, packed. It's a it's a sold-out event. Um, there are no sponsors for the event. It's purely educational. Uh, and I think it's going to be an exciting uh, two days. So it's on the 12th and the 14th. It's in person only. Uh, so we got lots of central banks coming in, uh, lots of acad- academics and leaders in the space coming in, thought leaders in the space coming in to discuss uh, CBDCs and digital currencies.
1: Great. So this will be a um, the perfect stage, so to speak, for it. Now that we've talked about basically everything that was going on around the CBDC manifesto, let's get to the flesh of the CBDC manifesto, meaning the five concrete design recommendations themselves. Tamara and Jamil, if you could give us an overview of those and if there was any discussion going on in the background um, amongst contributors, that would be also interesting to know about.
0: Good. Uh, Perhaps I can start saying that the first recommendation, um, it's about the CBDC adoption, uh, which must to be driven by uh, strong value propositions and we believe that issuing a CBDC that it's similar to the existing digital payments uh, methods may not create a unique value for citizens and thinking in this value propositions we can mention enhanced privacy offline digital payments Um, low risk as a digital form of default resistant central bank money, uh, programmability of payments and uh, use of uh, smart contracts, for example.
2: Yeah, I mean, so I think from my perspective, um, the foremost question that really gets asked is why do do we need a CBDC? Uh, We have, let's say, a sophisticated payment infrastructure. Uh, What is the benefit of CBDC? So I think one of the, the first, our first um, point on the manifesto is that there needs to be a clear value proposition. Right? There needs to be a clear why, right? And that why must be for the benefit of the people and not really the benefit of, of incumbents or um, central banks necessarily, right? So the, the value proposition must be aligned towards public gain um, um, and then uh, that kind of is the first point and you can see it's a meaty fleshy point one. it's like two 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 and a half paragraphs long um, and then the other points are a little bit more um, are, are, are a little bit more fine-grained but it, you know like I can remember some of the discussions I was having with internally with uh, our folks at the think tank over the manifesto you have for example you have a word in the first Uh, point of the manifesto, sanction resistant. Like, what does that even mean? Like, what are the implications of somebody saying, hey, this payment system must be sanction resistant, right? Are there geopolitical implications to making such a statement? And there are, right? Um, Because sanctions are a form of power. Uh, And here we are saying is that um, this, this uh, CBDC must be sanction resistant. And so what is what is what are we trying to say here? So there was lots of discussions behind the scenes around that. And we're not a political organization. Um, and I, I don't believe Dia is a political organization either. So uh, the, a lot of the discussions were like, are we like wh- whose, sto- whose toes are we stepping on? Do we want to step on those toes? uh how hard should we step on those toes if we're gonna step on them um and it, you can just see that just that that one word right that that uh pair of words typhonated in the text if you look at the text sanctioned resistant cause lots of discussion right uh never mind you know um the other words that are, are in the in a manifesto so anybody just looks at it you'll see other words there they're like you know what are the implications of this default resistant right so a digital form of but it's default, resistant. what does that even mean? Uh, what's the, how do you implement that? What's the economic monetary policies to 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 arrive at that, right? To be default resistant. Um, and so there's a lot packed into this, right? So even though um, the, the manifesto is maybe three, 400 words, it's words that are very, very carefully chosen. And then each of those words were hotly debated, right? Because everybody had different interpretations of each of these different words, um, and so um, I would say that if anybody's looking and reading the manifesto, should do it with that kind of knowledge and context. That hey, this is something that was uh, kind of uh, fought over. There was argument arguing. I remember one person saying, "I'm done. I'm not going to be involved," and walking away. And then they came back. You know, it was theater over a theater behind the of scenes. Um, but we see you know the first one's about value proposition the second one a big big topic which is privacy which you see certain segments of the crypto world attack the cbc world preeminently right it's a preeminent attack on cbdc's where there's a real no basis uh and so we point to address privacy right that there the, be the utmost uh respect for privacy there needs to be a technical design where privacy is assured. And if you look at Project Hamilton from um, the Boston Fed uh, and MIT, you can see um, there's a person named Madars who's co-founder of Zcash, which is the foremost uh, uh, cryptocurrency um, that is private um, and is involved in Project Hamilton, right? Actually, the paper is co-author of of, of the paper uh, on the platform. So the CBDC world is taking a look and, and, and thinking about privacy. We wanted to make sure that the public knew that this was important uh, and privacy mattered. Um, and then the third was a more, um, and I remember Google having the same kind of a approach like you know, do no evil. We had something similar say do no harm to society Um, uh, So CBC should not have negative externalities, should not impact the society in a negative way. Um, And the fourth and the fifth uh, are about how do we get there? Four should be that uh, we should be more collaborative, the different organizations should be working together. Um, And the fifth one is about um, interoperability by and large. Uh, How do we build more frictionless, seamless uh, payment infrastructure If we're we're in this kind of situation to reinvent everything, how do we reinvent it the right way?
0: I'd like to add uh, to the second recommendation about the privacy that the suggested solutions um, guarantee high privacy standards and ensure technical feasibility and regulatory complies in small and medium-sized CBDC transactions. Um, and the option to undertake anonymous payments up to a certain limit will be an effective measure to ensure high privacy guarantees for citizens uh, while controlling illicit activities.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a good point too, also very contentious. Like what's a small and medium sized transaction. I want to buy a Lamborghini. That might be a small transaction for me.
1: If your name is Jeff Bezos. Maybe not today.
2: Maybe someday that will be a small transaction, right? If you're Jeff Bezos, that's a small transaction. Uh, If I buy a Lamborghini, uh, which is a common transaction in lots of places in the world, uh, is my privacy disclosed? Uh, Is that a small or medium? Is that a large size transaction? Um, so, there's uh, lots of different perspectives, even on these points. Uh, uh, but I think the idea, the general principle is that uh, if you can't really use money to really impact and create harm, which you typically need lots of money for, let's say if you're going to buy um, uh, drug, you know, moving drugs and things like that, $500 or $100,000 might not, might not be much, do that. That, that those kind of things may not necessarily need to be anonymous. Um, so you know, the general intent of these, man- these manifesto items is to really kind of set a, a
1: kind of a generic bar. Certainly, that's a good example of the level of um, interpretation that's left to the person reading the manifesto um, and also central banks. I mean, another word that's coming to mind here is in the third Um, the third recommendation that's dealing with, um, a CBC should not be designed in a way to do harm to society and should be based on principles of self-determination and freedom. The freedom aspect, I mean, not even within countries can we agree necessarily on what that means, let alone how we preserve that, um, If we take a look at the United States, for example, the general notion of how freedom can be preserved would differ greatly, I would say, on average. I think that is fair to say. Then, um, if you ask the European how um, those measures could be um, preserved, the same goes for um, the need to trust the central bank um, to preserve um, privacy. Um, And how far would you say that this is implying that the central bank... um, either doesn't have access. Is this is this kind of going to the direction of, does the central bank even have access to um, certain data? Or does it more so mean um, that the central bank will have enough trust um, and that it's well grounded to place the trust in a central bank that it will preserve privacy?
2: Right. And, and we saw, I think a few weeks ago, the White House uh, released a paper on CBCs also kind of putting together high level, you know, it wasn't a manifesto, but it's similar to like what the manifesto is, high level principles and guidelines. Uh, But there was lots of room for interpretation, uh, which is not a bad thing, Uh, but but it's a starting point. So I think the manifesto is a starting point for uh, organizations and central banks and the public to say, hey, these are the issues. Uh, We agree with this, the manifesto, or we disagree with it. But at least it's a starting point to have a conversation Um, and uh, then to say, hey, how do we interpret this in a way that is really the right fit for maybe different environments?
1: Yeah, especially since we already mentioned, too, that this isn't focusing like the U.S. paper solely on one jurisdiction, but is more to be seen as a general CBDC manifesto.
2: Right. And I think we saw the ECB, I think it was this week or last week, saying something to the fact that... um, if there was a CBC, that it would not, they would not have access. They would not even have access to the data. I don't know if you can confirm that, but uh, I think that lots of lots of different central banks are coming forward saying, you know, privacy matters.
1: Yeah, that's what they're um, seeing as well in the um, consultations. Um, however, they're also putting forward that uh, privacy might not be um, as big of an issue in practice. What they're seeing is that there is a difference between what people claim to. Desire in privacy, whereas um, the way that they're actually treating their data in a um, not so uh, data protective way um, sometimes differs from what they would have said theoretically before right. making certain transactions. Okay. But again, that's that's um, not what we're, what's asked in the manifesto itself. The idea uh, should be that. Um, yeah, no harm is done to to society in general and not how you would answer a theoretical consultation or not.
2: Yeah, and you know, it's funny, like Venmo, which is app that I use for paying my friends for lunch, whatever, um, by default, your transactions are public. So like, like, oh, I just, well, you know, we just had fried chicken and I'm like, all right, I can see other people and what they're doing in their day. And how much they're spending well maybe not the amounts but like what they're what they're spending on um my personal settings i have turned that off like my transactions nobody can see but lots of people are very openly disclosing their transactions um so i think there is some credibility to the idea that people say one thing and maybe they're okay with something else
1: I mean, one, one quote that does come to mind here, and uh, in- interestingly enough, it would be interesting to see whether he would actually uh, support the manifesto or not. I would hope he would, um, as Edward Snowden that said, just because you've got nothing to say doesn't mean, um, right to, to voice your opinion shouldn't shouldn't exist or um, I don't need privacy because I've got nothing to hide that's basically saying nobody else has anything to hide either and as in your case, Jamal, you're choosing that you're not sharing this information with, with the rest of the world or even your friends not because you've necessarily got something to hide um, but just because it's your free choice to do so and that's more about that aspect than uh, what you end up doing um, and purchasing or not purchasing with it, I guess. Right,
2: right. So I don't know if you have his email address. I'll reach out to him. <laughs>
1: Not yet. <laughs> All right. I think we've we've covered a good bit here um, also about the discussions amongst experts about which points reached quite fast consensus and which ones caused more debate and are more open for interpretation. Before we wrap it up for today, I would like to ask both of you, which of the recommendations in the manifesto that are listed there, do you see as most likely to materialize um Well, I guess the question can be in the digital euro and then in a majority of CBDCs worldwide. And which ones do you see as the most unlikely to materialize?
0: To be honest, I think all five recommendations are likely to materialize. Maybe the point is uh, when this will happen. And I believe the interoperability maybe will be the most challenging uh, recommendation because each, each central bank is right now investigating its use cases and defining the, the best design approach that will address the problems to be solved with a CBDC. Um, so maybe they will uh, start to look to outside later. You know, it's
2: funny, um, Sarah, like yesterday I was texting um, somebody that does some cleaning for me. Um and I I texted them and I said, hey, do you do you accept Venmo? And he's like, no. Do you? And he asked me if I accept Cash App, and I said no. Um, and we went back and forth on like, what apps do you accept? And we didn't come to an agreement. Like, and so I'm like, all right, I'll just give you cash. And so even with with the U.S. dollar, we have interoperability issues, right? Um, and ironically, I think a U.S. CBDC would solve solve this Venmo to like Cash App to uh. Interoperability, like I could be able to move money between different fintech apps, possibly at least within the borders, maybe not cross border. But I agree uh, with with Tamara that um, interop is going to be a big, big issue. If you look at the history of technology, vendors come in and they create interoperability issues on purpose because it creates it creates moats um, around their their value proposition and, and their products. Uh, if you look at for example, service-oriented architectures, um, which were big 15, 20 years ago, but not really existent today, that kind of space, that kind of innovation around building software on services uh, and service uh, architecture, it went bust mainly because vendors came in and uh, made the space fragmented. Uh, and so the real whole whole point of service oriented architecture was interoperability between services uh, within a company and outside a company, uh, and that didn't materialize. Even though the technology was good, the idea was good. Um, um, vendors came in and 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 uh, didn't allow it to happen. And I'm afraid that's going to happen in this space. So interoperability, I think, is going to be uh, a difficult challenge. Um, and I think uh, the value proposition is emerging, right? I think we're starting to see why it, intra, uh, a value proposition, why CBDC could make things different. Um, and I think, so, so our point number one in the manifesto is something that I believe we'll start to see more and more uh, readily be kind of uh, satisfied, right? That kind of... Uh, question around it, be satisfied.
1: All right. That will be interesting to see in a couple couple of years from now. We'll possibly do um, the CBDC Manifesto recap in in 10 years from now, see what materialized, what didn't. (laughs) Um, But with that being said, I think our audience got a good overview of all the work that went into the CBDC Manifesto, the discussions that happened um, behind the, um, you said it before, the I think, uh, a page long manifesto at this point that um, hopefully a lot of people will feel is worth to share that they deem is share worthy. If you want to take a look at the CBDC manifesto, if you haven't yet, then head over to the CBDC manifesto website, which is, of course, linked down um, in the show notes. So make sure to check it out and um, again, share if you do agree with the points that are listed there. And thank you for tuning into this episode. We hope that you've enjoyed it. Also reach out to the Digital Euro Association via our social media channels, Twitter and LinkedIn or our website, especially if you're interested in staying up to date with news and discussions around CBCs and stablecoins worldwide and becoming part of the DIA. This stage also belongs to the CBC think tank, Jamil. How can people best stay up to date with the tremendous work And the upcoming events that you guys are doing?
2: Um, Simple, go to cbdctt.com and everything's there. Uh, We also run cbdcinsider.com, which is a news aggregation site, which we're expanding. Uh, We're starting something called Project Lantern, which will aggregate more data and content around CBDCs. Uh, Hopefully, we'll have a proof of concept or pilot version in January, February. But um, the epicenter is cbdctt.com.
1: And we will, of course, link to that down in the show notes, too. So head over there to access all those links. That being said, Tamara and Jamil, thank you so much for sharing your um, expertise with us today and the work on the CBDC Manifesto. It was truly a pleasure to talk to both. Thank you, Sarah.
2: Thank you.